It's the end of the month, which means it's time for a media spotlight. This month's end of the month media spotlight is a double spotlight. Lila Lawler offers a guided read entitled God Has No Grandchildren to the encyclical Casti Conubi or Chaste Marriage by Pope Pius XI. So the assumption in spotlighting God Has No Grandchildren is that you will, of course, read the encyclical as well. Otherwise, the commentary makes little sense. I love encyclicals in general. Um, but I know that they can intimidate a lot of people. And, you know, I, I have three kids, four and under, but moms with like a dozen kids <laughs> and none of them are in high school are like, I do not have time for this. <laughs> and yet I do want to encourage you to try. So often I see non-Catholics, both secularists and Protestants alike, insisting that the Catholic Church demands of its members some sort of blind obedience akin to slavery. And yet what we find is that what the Church teaches is out there. It's very easily accessible. It's public information. The Church is thoroughly transparent about her teachings. So it is not the secrecy of the Church which has resulted in Catholics with so many unanswered catechetical questions, but rather, I mean, I just have to be straight up about this, the laziness of those particular Catholics. If you want to understand why the church teaches what she teaches on abortion, contraception, divorce, monogamy, embryonic stem cell research, what have you, not just what she teaches, but why, she teaches it. If you don't know the why behind what you believe, and you allow that question to become an obstacle to your faith, that's on you. And that goes for every single Catholic out there, obviously, not just Catholic wives. If you do not know why the church teaches what she teaches, that comes down to you. And for too many people, it comes down to just straight up laziness. Catholics, nominal Catholics, fallen away Catholics, who object to what they think the church teaches based on their lack of understanding as to the why behind her teachings, are thoroughly accountable for failing to get answers. At least I say that thinking of first world countries where there's internet, it's easy to go to vatican.va and look up any document that you like. There's no excuse for not being able to find those answers. That's like complaining that you want an apple when you're sitting right next to an apple tree in the fall. (laughs) Something that I recently told a Protestant friend is that the church's use of the word mystery um, does not mean something which makes zero sense. What the church means by the use of the word mystery is that there is something which is entirely logical, but it is too much for the human mind to comprehend. So, for example, the teaching that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. I I have no idea how that is possible. I do not pretend to know how 
that is at all possible. But for all the teachings of the church to be true, to be sound, to make sense, it is absolutely necessary for Christ to be fully God and also fully man. This is how the church gets to what she calls mysteries, is that centuries of collective thought, of collective exegesis, of collective study of history, of philosophy, particularly of Plato and Aristotle, of both Judaic and Christian tradition, and of theology, comes to a logical conclusion, a logical answer to a fundamental question. The how of that logical answer may not be easily explained by or to a human being. But this is what we mean in the church when we say that faith and reason go hand in hand. God asks his people to believe many things which seem to human beings to be impossible because of our limitations as humans. But he never asks us to believe anything which is utterly illogical. And thus has given us this incredible capacity to explore and internalize objective truth. This is, this is absolutely incredible. There's so much about this fact that's so beautiful. And one of the most beautiful things is that precisely because the church's teachings are thoroughly logical, it's perfectly possible to be entirely reliant on natural law and live in accordance with God's plans, with his designs, to live in conformity to his will. With that said, so why the church then? Why all these long documents like this encyclical? Well, because it helps. <laughs> Last week we talked about vulnerability, and I'll never forget this long conversation um, that I had with a Protestant acquaintance over social media, one of those conversations you probably shouldn't get into, <laughs> that I just, I had to cut it off at some point because it was such a fruitless conversation. We went back and forth for days and this lady was insisting that what I was blindly repeating and following was something that I had been taught by men but that she followed God because what she believed had been revealed to her directly by God. So let's, let's talk about that. To support this claim of hers that what she believed had been revealed to her directly by God, she made frequent reference to the Bible. She sent me several YouTube videos and she sent me several websites all backing up her position and her various explanations of things, including, you know, <laughs> my questions about how she understood the Bread of Life discourse in John 6. If you make reference to something upon which you base your life, upon which you base the way you live, then you are entrusting yourself, you are entrusting your eternal soul, if not your entire physical being, to the wisdom of whoever put out that thing that you referenced. If you send me a website, that means that you trust 
whoever wrote the content on that website. If you send me a YouTube video, you're demonstrating that you trust that whoever is making the YouTube video is correct. And when you make reference to sacred scripture, you show that you trust whatever bunch of people decided that these books were going to be the books included in what we call the Bible. You demonstrate that you trust the testimony of everyone who has ever claimed that the Bible is God's word. And you trust whoever translated the Bible from the original Greek and Aramaic to English, or first to Latin and then to English. And you trust the evolution of the English language and the people who keep updating the English translation of the Bible that you're now reading because the Bible that you're reading is not the original. It's not the very first translation of the Bible from its original Greek and Aramaic and or Latin to English, right? Anytime that you put forward a source which did not originate within your own mind, you listening to this podcast even, right? If you share this with friends, that says something about how you feel about me and my testimony. Anytime that you put forward a source which did not originate within your own mind, you're demonstrating trust in someone else. This is not merely applicable in religion. This is applicable in every part of life. When you say anything aloud, you demonstrate that you trust everyone who ever played a part in teaching you the English language. When you pay for groceries at the store, you trust that whoever built the cash register programmed it to do math correctly. And also that the cashier is telling you the truth about the total. So many of these people, Protestants specifically, who claim that Catholics follow blindly, and that they, by contrast, have the advantage of God speaking directly to them, I have found that too many of them somehow cannot come to this logical conclusion that their reference to unoriginal sources is a demonstration of trust in that source. So I'll give a specific example. You know, this, this woman, she said to me, quote, there are no contradictions despite the 40 authors that wrote the 66 books over a period of about 1,500 years. Yet it is one streamlined story of salvation, end quote. She said that, of course, about the Bible. And I asked her how she knew that. Look at the facts that are claimed within that sentence. She states that there are 40 authors. She states that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. And she claims that there are no contradictions within the Bible. But when pressed, right, admittedly, she didn't personally meet the 40 authors, which means that she got that number, that information from someone else. She was not personally involved in carbon dating any of the original scrolls upon which any of sacred scripture was written. So when she claims this 1500 year period, she got that information from someone else. And then the same thing with her claim that there are no contradictions within the Bible. 
the difference between me and that woman was not necessarily the stuff of what we believed, although that that was part of it. (laughs) But just that sentence, yeah, we believe those exact same three things. The difference is that I'm okay with admitting that I have built my worldview on the testimony of others. And she is not okay with admitting that at all, no matter how easily it is demonstrated. Last week we talked about vulnerability and how another word for that in the context of our relationship with God is surrender. Well, being willing to admit that I am not an expert in Greek or Aramaic or even Latin, even though I studied it, right? Being willing to admit that I am dependent on the superior intellect of thousands of biblical scholars and theologians before me is a form of vulnerability. And it's a form of surrender to the fact that God clothed the 12 with the authority to organize, to build up, and to protect his church, God's church, from the errors of prideful men. And that that authority in an unbroken line from Christ through St. Peter to the current successor of St. Peter has brought us to where we are today. In the most simplistic terms, I'm, I'm okay with not trying to remake the wheel because I pass hundreds of perfectly functional cars every single day, indicating, demonstrating to me that other people nailed this wheel thing and at the same time wheels are out in the open and if i truly desire if i truly desire to study and master everything there is to know about wheels there's nothing stopping me from having at it no one's trying to hide from me the secrets behind wheels our faith is the same way no one in the church is trying to hide the why behind what the church teaches. And like the hundreds of perfectly functional cars with obviously excellent wheels, we have the saints. If the church is serious about producing saints, then it would be very counterproductive of her to keep the means to becoming saints from us, from anybody. Which brings us back to encyclicals. That was a long roundabout tangent. Um, specifically to this encyclical on chaste marriage. If I want to be a saint in my specific vocation as a married woman, then would it not benefit me greatly to read those documents of the church regarding marriage and regarding women? I don't want to waste energy trying to figure out from scratch (laughs) what a married saint looks like any more than I want to try to remake the wheel. Now, I think that this guide, Lila Lawler's God Has No Grandchildren, helps to break the encyclical Casticonubi into digestible chunks. I was able to read both the encyclical and the guide over the course of three days, and going back and forth between the two really made the whole read much faster. Let me explain. God has no grandchildren is broken up into eight parts, which breaks the encyclical up into six parts. Each part of the guide focuses on a certain set of paragraphs in the encyclical, 
One of the challenges which reading a papal document unguided presents is, at least for me, a temptation um, to pause and wrestle with something right when I come across that difficult thing. So when I read a papal document unguided, there's this potential for me to get stuck (laughs) on a sentence or a paragraph or a section for weeks on end as I go looking up scripture and other encyclicals and other documents trying to make sense of this thing that I'm wrestling with. And that's not a bad method, right? But it is one of the reasons that I haven't gotten through as many documents of the church as I would like. Um, What I did with this read-through, though, given that I had a guide, was to just read the paragraphs prescribed, reading carefully, but not pausing to wrestle with anything beyond grammar and punctuation. Because, of course, the original document is in Latin. And then going back to the guide and allowing the guide to walk me through the process of wrestling with the actual content. Last week, I talked about backsliding in the discipline of joy. And a lot of the parts that I had to wrestle with pertained to that backsliding, pertained to internalizing the potential for damage to my family. If I fail in the task which God has entrusted to me as a Catholic wife. And that's the first thing that I want to bring to your attention with the following three quotes from part one of God Has No Grandchildren, which is commentary on paragraphs one through nine of the encyclical. Quote, a man and a woman freely enter into the married state, but they have no freedom as to what that state is. They can do well or ill, but they can't change what the plan is, end quote. Quote, it's no use thinking of marriage as something like a set of blocks out of which you can build whatever you want, end quote. And, quote, marriage is less like a construct, an arbitrary convenience, and more like water that you can drink or not drink. But as to its use in your body and its necessity, you have no say. It is what it is. End quote. If you've been listening to our podcast for some time, the Will to Wife podcast, you know that this is a belief that we hold here. That God has a design for marriage. That God has a plan for marriage. And my job as a married person is to follow that plan. What hurts my marriage is failing to follow God's plan. This can seem so hard to swallow. And at the same time, it's something that you accept about so many other things in your life on a daily basis. You accept that there is a correct way to drive your car. And that there are rules for driving on the road. And you put yourself in danger by trying to drive your car differently from how it's meant to be driven or by making up your own rules for the road. Well, your marriage is the same. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it, but you can't change what marriage is or what your responsibilities as a married woman are. 
And then what are your responsibilities as a married woman? Skipping along to part three of God Has No Grandchildren, which covers paragraphs 19 through 30. First, this quote from the encyclical itself, paragraph 27, quote, For if the man is the head, the woman is the heart. And as he occupies the chief place in ruling, so she may and ought to claim for herself the chief place of love. End quote. I've seen wives have questions about how the litany of humility applies to a married woman. And this brief sentence affirms that it is neither an unholy nor a worldly and unworthy desire in a wife to be her husband's priority. But with that said, and this is where the humility comes in, here are two quotes from the guide. Quote, Wives, your husband is making it possible for you to be the maker of a sanctuary, the heart of what you build together. If you tear it down with your own hands, you are tearing out your own heart. End quote. And also, quote, Many women in our post-feminist culture show no respect for their husbands, even the respect due another human being, let alone one you have committed yourself to for life. But other women adopt a false subservience. Sometimes these women have a subservience that veils a contemptuous and discontented attitude that ultimately destroys the friendship that ought to come about in marriage understood in the Aristotelian sense of equals whose lives are united. Neither of these types of women will readily yield in anything large or small. End quote. The desire to be prioritized by one's husband is not synonymous, or it ought not be synonymous, with a desire to be worshipped by one's husband. And that's where women get tripped up. When priority for a woman means that she ought not be submissive to him when priority for a woman means that her needs always come before his when priority for a woman means that she should be freed from her normal responsibilities or when it means that he should always want what she wants and that he should always do as she wants. To want these things is not to desire to be prioritized in a proper and holy way, but to desire to be worshipped. Contempt for your husband is something that you choose, is something that you allow to enter into your heart and which you choose to breed. Discontent is also something that you choose to allow into your heart and which you choose to breed. Both contempt and discontent can be avoided by your choices. Specifically, your choices to implement and maintain a discipline of joy. Last week, we also talked about the discipline of joy being a discipline of surrender of giving God the room to bring us to our full potential. And in paragraphs 40 and 41 of Casti Konubi, Pope Pius XI says this, quote, By the very fact, therefore, that the faithful with sincere mind give such consent, they open up for themselves a treasure of sacramental grace, from which they draw supernatural power for the fulfilling of their rights and duties faithfully, 
holily, perseveringly, even unto death. Hence, the sacrament not only increases sanctifying grace, the permanent principle of the supernatural life, in those who, as the expression is, place no obstacle or obex in its way, but also adds particular gifts, dispositions, seeds of grace by elevating and perfecting the natural powers. By these gifts, the parties are assisted not only in understanding, but in knowing intimately, in adhering to firmly, in willing effectively, and in successfully putting into practice those things which pertain to the marriage state, its aims and duties, giving them in fine right to the actual assistance of grace, whensoever they need it for fulfilling the duties of their state. Nevertheless, since it is a law of divine providence in the supernatural order that men do not reap the full fruit of the sacraments which they receive after acquiring the use of reason unless they cooperate with grace. The grace of matrimony will remain, for the most part, an unused talent hidden in the field unless the parties exercise these supernatural powers and cultivate and develop the seeds of grace they have received. End quote. I, I want to read that last sentence again. This is from paragraph 41. Nevertheless, since it is a law of divine providence in the supernatural order that men do not reap the full fruit of the sacraments which they receive after acquiring the use of reason unless they cooperate with grace, the grace of matrimony will remain for the most part an unused talent hidden in the field unless the parties exercise these supernatural powers and cultivate and develop the seeds of grace they have received. End quote. The Pope is really emphasizing for us here that the person getting in the way of God bringing us to our full potential is our own self. And it occurs to me that what we might have difficulty reconciling are the ideas of potential and of hierarchy. We think of hierarchy as oppressive. We've been trained by the world to think this way, but that's not actually how we live. Another word for hierarchy is order. And going back to the car example, you have to turn the car on before you can start driving it. That's a hierarchy of operation. You can keep the car turned off and you can wiggle the steering wheel back and forth all day and the car might inch forward incrementally, the way those plasma cars in elementary school worked, where they moved forward by you moving the steering wheel back and forth, right? But you'll look pretty darn asinine and go virtually nowhere in comparison with the person who actually turns on their car and makes it up to 70 miles an hour, right? Further on in Casticonubi, the, the Pope affirms, quote, the order of the domestic society is founded on something higher than human authority and wisdom, namely on the authority and wisdom of God, and so not changeable by public laws or at the pleasure of private individuals, end quote. That's from paragraph 77. And Lila Lawler then goes on to comment in section 5 of God Has No Grandchildren, which covers 
paragraphs 44 to 93. Quote, The home needs an inviolable heart. It is not a commentary on the validity of a woman's involvement in things outside the home, but a statement of priorities. It is not a proscription against individual expression, but a warning of the quick ascendancy of the will to power when the important, hidden, humble things are lost. End quote. Wow. You know, that's one of the lies of the world that so many Catholic women have bought into, that being humble and hidden in the home is a renunciation of individual expression. But you know, no matter how many Pinterest boards you've created, how you decorate your home will still be entirely specific to you. What a privilege. You want to talk about cookie cutter life? Your husband is the one encountering cookie cutter life at work. Your kids are the ones encountering cookie-cutter life in public school. Your home is yours. You just have to claim it. And that's the last thing that I want to comment on here. Castico Nobi was addressed to the clergy, not to the laity. But in paragraph 110, we find this gem. Quote, Even the very best instruction given by the church, however, will not alone suffice to bring about once more conformity of marriage to the law of God. Something more is needed in addition to the education of the mind, namely a steadfast determination of the will on the part of husband and wife to observe the sacred laws of God and of nature in regards to marriage. End quote. So even though this encyclical is addressed to the clergy, that sentence right there, this is paragraph 110, is for us. On this very topic, Lawler comments, quote, God, it turns out, didn't order the world so that if you aren't the president, you are helpless. He didn't order reality so that if you don't have earthly power, you are pretty much sunk. Quite the opposite. He did the opposite. He confounded the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.27 He has made the littlest things of the utmost importance. He made reality so that a man who humbly does a sort of unpleasant job for the sake of his family is in fact the real lord of the manor with many dependents, ones he may never see or meet in this world, and much fruitfulness. A man of no account in the world of lawmaking, or no voice in the even more important world of preaching and spiritual leadership, can yet be the builder of a rich culture and the sower of prosperous fields. This is the key to understanding how it is that a woman's call to love the little place of her home is such a great and even momentous action in the world if you have ears to hear it, if you can love the hidden and resist the lure of the oversized and loud and lucrative claim to fame, you will have the privilege to know how it can be that one woman, one family, one home, yours, can change and build and restore. End quote. Women have such potential to be of such incredible influence if they would only focus their influence on the sphere for which they were created to have the highest influence, which is in their family.
How you form your kids, which is mostly through how you treat your husband, influences the world. Will you rise to that responsibility? Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Thank you.